0: on the phone, a week and production. This call is now being recorded.
1: And it's episode nine. I don't know how it became episode nine that quick, but it's episode nine of Two on the Phone, and um, I'll let my guest this week introduce himself.
0: Hey, what's up, guys? So this is Young Sheed uh, Caleb Weed from the O2 Collection. And uh, I'm just uh, blessed to be a part of this today, so I'm excited to get talking. Yeah. So, so Caleb, tell me a, a little bit about,
1: uh, I guess, your your music and you know your yeah. the O2 collection. What that is? Introduce that yep. a little.
0: Cool. So, um, so I've probably been making music. I'm 21 now. I probably released my first uh, like mixtape project when I was about 14, 15 years old. Um, so, been doing that for a while, was traveling with my music for a while, born and raised in Delaware, well, not born, but raised, lived my whole life from the time I was a baby in Sussex County, Delaware, so, always been big into, like, um, the culture of what we have going on down here and trying to figure out how we can better serve artists, so, um, about almost three years ago now is when we started the O2 collection. So we were pumping our music heavy for a while and then realized that we needed some type of, if we were going to truly be independent artists, we needed some type of platform um, to be able to promote ourselves and an actual company that we had the infrastructure to promote ourselves and our music and our brand versus just trying to um, basically always uh, convince somebody else that we were worthy of promoting. So we started the O2 collection, which is basically started as a clothing line, um, but has just been a brand centered around um, Delaware. So the O2 is what we call our area of the 302. So we say all the all the coastline of Delaware is what we call the O2. So it basically that's pretty
1: that's pretty yeah. clever, you know, coming up, you know, because there's there's all sorts of brands out there with the 302 and, you know, that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And you you and have it, to it, you
1: it, have to find your – go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, and it was one of those things, too, like there's so much 302 stuff around, and it's like, okay, well, how are we going to specify, like, even within a small state of Delaware, how are we going to really represent for an even smaller portion of where we're from? Because if you go to Wilmington, it is nothing like – Rehoboth Beach it's nothing like Milton it's nothing like Ellendale so we have this like um like this like small town but like very art-centered beach city that we live in so like how are we going to specifically represent for this so that's how the O2 collection came about
1: what um where do you take your inspiration as far as your music and things like that. I know you said, you know, living around here, is that pretty much it? But like, what other artists have, you know, inspired you to become an artist?
0: Yeah. Um, I always... See, I come from a weird family because, like, as a biracial kid myself, um, you know, I've had all these different influences from different cultures in my music. So, like, and then on top of that, I was adopted. So, I grew up in a church family. So, my dad, um is a pastor, but he raised me on like classic rock music and like acoustic music. My mom was into like gospel and uh, church music. And then kind of as I grew up, I found the love for like instrumentation and um, I've played drums, I play piano, I play guitar. So anything that was progressive in its instrumentation and then that gradually led me just through the neighborhood that I lived in listening to hip hop and listening to R and B and um so I'd say like old like old Kanye was definitely a huge influence for me because I never heard somebody before I heard like um like Dark Twisted Fantasy, like um uh the other albums in my mind. The one that got uh Say You Will and uh Heartless what is that? Eight oh eight and Heartbreak. Like, I never heard anything before that uh, that sounded like that in the realm of hip-hop and R&B. So I think when I heard those albums, it expanded my mind so much to, like, no, this is really, like, this can be beautiful in its instrumentation as well as just the lyrical content and the flows and the patterns of lyricism on top of it. So So truly a melting pot of
1: all sorts of genres and and trying to, you know, and, and trying to be different. I, I mean, I think that's the big right. key because if you're just like everybody else, you know, what are you going to sell?
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's why I think so like and the sad thing is that I think in our culture now with like the state of the Internet and Instagram is like everybody's trying to copy what's trending now because they know that it's going to get them um, like a boost or some exposure now but all that dies off in the long run because if you don't have your own lane to move in, then you're just gonna be constantly trying to ride these trends versus being like, all right, well, this is who I am and this is what I know I bring to the table, so let me just triple down on this and then if people like it, people like it. If they don't like it, you know, they don't have to listen to it. So you're being true to yourself is what you're saying. And and
1: whatever trend is whatever trend. Yeah, exactly. Um so I've I've brought this topic up before with guests and I think it, it's funny how it transcends um you know everything it, you know I'm a photographer you know one of the many things I do right. about, I'm a photographer so being a photographer you know with the age of everybody having a camera on their phone and everybody thinking that you know they can go into instagram and apply some filters and they have the best picture ever everybody thinks the photographer is one of the things i always say you think we're getting there with music too because you know like with uh software on the mac and you know the pc and things like that everybody can mix and do everything are we the same place in music that everybody thinks they can be you know the greatest singer ever
0: yeah absolutely absolutely everybody and especially in the genre of hip hop like everybody and their cousin and their mom and their auntie is a rapper <laughs> in that, like in our culture nowadays like i probably run into like at least seven people you know weekly that are like oh like if they know that i do music they're like oh you got to check this out like i rap you know what i mean and it, it's it's like it's a it's kind of like a double like it's a double edged thing like two sides of a coin because on one end it's like that's the beauty of our culture is that it's inclusive but then the other end of it is the people that are actually gifted in it and are actually trying to hone their craft sometimes go unnoticed or fly under the radar because they're trying to cut through all the noise of like oh everybody does this
1: you mentioned uh, you mentioned social media and the culture we live in. Uh, just a couple of your thoughts on, you know, the positivity and the negativity of um, being somewhat of a, a public figure, I guess, putting your music out there. You know, do yeah. you have the whole thing of you put something out there and somebody smashes it and says, oh, my stuff is better? Or just, you know, tell me a little bit about how that goes with, you know, in the hip-hop and rap culture. Is that just as bad as it is everywhere else? Yeah, absolutely.
0: I'd say it's... it's, it's just, Yeah, I would say it's, it's maybe not worse, but it's definitely as bad as it is everywhere else. Like, I always call people keyboard warriors. So, like, <laughs> everybody's going to dump behind their, you know, keyboard or their phone, and, like, you know, they're going to tell you all this, over the internet or they're going to speak any type of way over the internet. But if you see them in person, it's going to be a completely different energy. Like they're not going to come with like, you know, the crazy stuff that they would say over the internet because it's like a shield. And I think that it's, it's what it's really, what the internet is doing in the worst of itself is allowing people to compensate for their own insecurities, but they don't understand that it's, um, Like it's not a healthy way of coping, but because it's so socially acceptable to be on your phone all the time, people are coping with these—you know what I mean—with insecurities and depressions, being on their phone all the time. But like, it's not—it's not in any way going to help. Like, I was watching um, this—I was watching this interview on the Breakfast Club with this guy. I forget the name of the book that he wrote, but he was talking about um, like. He was basically like a whistleblower on, like, the social media, um, like, enterprise and the social media, like, uh, like infrastructure and business structure where he was saying, like, social media is specifically being designed to keep you on there. Like, it's specifically being designed to trigger certain chemicals in your brain to where every time it flashes up, you look at it, and the more time you spend looking at it, that's more money that they're putting in their pocket. Like, he he said it's almost like um, when cigarettes were being promoted to teenagers, like, not knowing that those they have harmful effects on the teenage brain even further than they have on the adult brain. Like, it's more addicting for the teenage brain than it is the adult brain, and he was comparing social media to being that exact same thing.
1: Yeah, and I've always thought that um, ever since – you know, I'm at the age where I really remember, and I grew up without the internet. So, right. you know, I was I was about um, 18, 19 when I got on the internet the first time, and that was before it was even a graphical thing. It was, you know, I had to dial up and connect to uh, a bulletin board here, and then jump over to somewhere in London and get on something, and you know, right. I had to hit the right keys and all that stuff. And so. You know, I remember a life without the internet and you know all that kind of thing. But now, especially these kids coming up, kids, you know, guys your age um, and a little younger, they've known they've never known anything different. Um, you yeah. know, it's always been about you know, if I want some information, I just Google it. You know, we had to look at encyclopedias or ask someone or something like that. You know, so it's totally different. But I really do believe that it's an addiction of sorts um Absolutely. and and it's not necessarily always a negative one um i think i think times are changing as far as how people learn things because of the internet um and that's right. not necessarily a bad thing um yeah. you know like with my with my news page you know i get information out there much quicker usually than the big news giants of the world because right I, I'm able to have that platform. Um, without the internet, would I have that platform? Would I be doing this? Absolutely not. We wouldn't. You and I wouldn't be talking right now if it wasn't for yeah, the internet. We be so, yeah, yeah. So like it's um, and, and that's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons I started this podcast is because people don't talk on the phone anymore. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I mean, and you know, you and I wouldn't be connecting, you know, if it wasn't for me having this podcast and any of my other guests, you know, we wouldn't be talking. Um, you know, some of the people that I've had, a couple of the people I've had are close personal friends and I've probably talked to them maybe once or twice ever on the phone. It's either in person or a text message or whatever. You know, people just don't talk on the phone mm-hmm. any. Yeah. Now, one of the things I'd like to ask you is, you know, with hip-hop and... uh Rap and, you know, that kind of things, there is a certain negative stereotype that kind of goes along with that. Obviously, right. with your upbringing and, you know, being raised around the church and everything, you know, what can you talk about how you're overcoming that stereotype? Because that has to be a stereotype that you have to deal
0: with. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, and it's, and like I said, as somebody that's a biracial kid, so I'm, you know what I mean, mixed with black and white, like, the stereotype is even more pressing because I have a portion of my family that's all white, not to make it just about race, but, like, that's looking in at this culture that they don't understand because they weren't raised in it. And it is easy to, like, judge and kind of just look at the direct stereotype. Um, I would say, like, anything in life, it's all about context. So when you know the context of the culture of what somebody else is growing up in, then it becomes very easy or easier to understand why they behave in the way that they're behaving. So I think that, um, and like hip hop has always been something that is uncensored, like from the, like from the heart is uncensored. So it's like, right, we almost like Tom. That's why I respected like the first time I saw Mooncat comedy. I was like, is, "Can we curse on this podcast?"
1: Yeah, not too
0: much, but yeah, yeah. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, yeah, no, no, no. You're good. I'll, I'll keep it clean. So the first time I saw Moon uh, Mooncat comedy, I was like, "Man, this is insane!" <laughs> but I respected so so much the fact that Tom said, "Like, not nah, like this is an uncensored comedy event. Like, we're not going to yank the mic from people for saying something that's ridiculous." So I think that in the same way of, um, like, historically, the culture of hip-hop is, like, that of of people who have been oppressed. So when you've been oppressed for the entirety of being a part of this country and it's like, oh, you can't do this, you can't say this, you can't eat in this restaurant, Um, you can't drink from this water fountain, you can't go to this school, you know what I mean, you can't have this job. You can't make this salary. At a certain point, I think the beauty of what hip-hop was and the same as the beauty of rock and roll when that was started in the South of, like, no, I'm going to get up and I'm going to say whatever I want to say. And I'm going to tell you what's going on, like, in my head and in my heart. And I'm going to tell you the way that these, um, that that the system that I'm in, like, I'm going to tell you all about it and I'm going to tell you about how I'm going to get out of it and i'm going to tell you about um the desires that i have and the things that i struggle with so i think sometimes and then looking at it from the outside in i can completely see how it would have a negative negative stereotype cuz it's like oh man like these people are just like this like it's just vulgar but it's but when you're looking at it through the lens of like this is truly coming out of a place of um like, this is my reality, then it becomes easier to see. And and it's beautiful now because hip-hop has evolved so much, and there's a lot of, like, old hip-hop heads that are like, oh, you know, like, it's like the 90s, you know what I mean? Tupac, Biggie, uh," you know what I mean? That's all we want to hear. Oh, NWA, that's all we want. But um, it's, like, it's evolved so far beyond that that people are telling their story and their truth in, like, in today's form. So, like, in the 2010s up, and in the 2000s, you know what I mean, to 2010s, like, I feel like every decade, every generation has those staples in hip-hop of, like, speaking on what exactly was going on in the culture at that time. That makes perfect sense.
1: And, and since you brought it up, you know, I, and I just want kind of your take, uh, you know, being an interracial child, you know, was it stressful, not necessarily from necessarily, I mean, I'm sure it was, but from like a bullying standpoint, but was it stressful from, did you feel like you had two races that you needed to represent? Or yeah. did that never really come into your mind?
0: I would say, um, it No, it came, it certainly came into my mind. It was one of those things like, like, I feel like if you're mixed in America, like you're just black. So it never like, I never particularly identified myself like, oh, you know what I mean? Like I'm a Caucasian person, but there's still that part of my history and my ancestry there. You know what I mean? And it's, it's, uh, I would say, Hmm. I I would say it was stressful from the point of, like, if you're around, like, you're going to get bullied when you're an interracial kid. Not all the time. Like, hopefully it's different nowadays. But it's, like, you know, like, I grew up in a neighborhood that was uh, Hispanic people, white people, black people. So it's, like, for white people, I was too black. For black people, I was too white type of thing, which that can be stressful. But I think just like anything in life, kids are going to, like, when you're a kid you gotta learn how to deal with all those things growing up because like that's just how kids are. <laughs> you know, I mean kids, yeah. <laughs> kids kinda suck, like, yeah, they I, make fun of you for anything. But Yeah, it's, I it's, my it's, my son Oh go ahead, sorry. No, I was gonna say it's one of those things like like the more I grow up, the more I understand how much of a blessing it actually is because I can truly take gems from both of those cultures and make myself a more rounded person. So like, um, it's almost like being able to, I almost feel like I'm an ambassador. (laughs) Like when I'm with my white family, I'm an ambassador for my black family. When I'm with my black family, I'm an ambassador for my white family. And, you
1: know, I'm sure that that's, again, not the easiest thing to do, Um, but it sounds like you've handled it well you know, isn't it a shame that we can't live in a culture where you're just a person?
0: Yeah, no, it absolutely is a shame. It is. And I think it's cool, and like the the amount of like uh, progressive thought that the youth nowadays have, like as as screwed up as some kids are, like looking at their phones all the time and like you know don't have a grip on reality. Like, one thing that the that the youth coming up are not going to tolerate is racism, and they're not going to tolerate sexism, and they're not going to tolerate, you know what I mean, homophobia. So it's definitely a blessing in disguise, The you know what I mean, some of the gems yeah. that they have. Well,
1: I think, you know, one of the things that social media does is it spreads, <laughs> like you said, platforms. It spreads them quicker and allows you to be more successful and if you have a platform against something such as racism it it does spread that, you know, quicker but it, the only problem is the hate spreads quickly too. So yeah. but I do agree with you that I think for the most part the kids coming up are I think they're being exposed to it more than I was and even than you were. I mean, you know, I'm right. I'm over I'm over double your age. So I, um, <laughs> you no, know, uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't like to admit that, but, you know, I, uh, I came up in a time, I grew up in Selbyville, and, you know, I had, you know, a couple, there was only, I think in my first grade class as a whole, there was like maybe five black people. But they were my friends, and I didn't know that they were different. I had no growth, you know, I I only, and and they shouldn't be different. And they aren't different other than skin color. So I think that it, you know, we've come a long way. We have a long way to go. But the thing that always amazes me, I was born in 1971. There was a movie called The Help that came out a few years ago. I was watching that, and they were talking about the time frame of it, and it was like 1967, 1968. We are not that far removed from the racial riots and everything of the 60s. We have a long way to go, but in a short period of time, I feel, and as a white person, I guess that really doesn't mean much, but I feel like we've come a long way, and we do have a long way to go, but that's just my thing.
0: And and it's, I think it's important to always keep that time frame like in the forefront of our minds, because like we are not very far removed from these things, so I think sometimes like um when people object to like um like in black culture, like, oh, why do you behave this way, or like, why are you doing this like it like it will really mess with your mind understanding that like your uh like your granddad or your great granddad was a slave like that's cr- like that's how close it is you know what i mean to us like i was talking to my uncle um my uncle is probably like 65 like and he was and like he's telling me about these like extremely racist things that happened to him when he was a kid and it's like he's 65 like we're you know what i mean like he's not like that's like he's just a little bit older than my mom so it's like you know what i mean like you said you were born in 71 and this stuff was happening in the 60s, and it's, and, like, yeah. it's happening. I mean, I mean in, in
1: 1960, I believe it was 1964 through, like, 1967, Cambridge, Maryland isn't that far away. I lived there for a while. It's not that far away. Cambridge, Maryland was occupied by the National Guard for about three years in the late 60s because of the racial riots. Yeah. That's, that's, right. I mean... It is crazy. I mean, and I think people lose track of that. Um, You know, history, I'm a history buff. I like history. But not everybody does and not everybody studies it. But looking back at these things and the way decisions were made and the things that happened that are now just coming to light. uh, Coming to light is the wrong word. But there are things that happened then that were finally just getting resolved. Um, Right. And it takes one of those And nobody understands yeah. that it takes time.
0: No. And it's like like I think something like Flint, Michigan, like fifty years down the road, people are gonna look back at that and be like, how did America ever allow that to happen? And like right. people in Flint still to this day don't have clean water. Right. And like It's been one of those things that like it blew up on the internet and it was a huge topic of discussion for a little bit, but then just like every other news story, like in two months, it doesn't matter. But like, like uh, the government of America, like poisoned the people of Flint, you know what I mean? Whether it was direct or indirect, like that's a gross human rights casualty that happened there right in America in our recent history. And it's so I so like when people think back and they're like, man, how did people ever tolerate like, uh, like segregation? How did people ever tolerate that? Well, we tolerated it in the same way that we tolerate Flint still not having clean water.
1: We're running close on time, but there's a couple little small topics. Well, they're not small topics. There's a couple topics I still want to cover. So we're just going to go on a few more minutes if you're good on time.
0: Yeah, I'm good.
1: Okay. So, you know, we we we've come down a path, you know, talking about this stuff. And I think we should take I think we should take it to the end and I, yeah. you know, being an interracial person, you know, right now one of the hot topics for the past 3 or 4 years has been the way that the police treat black young men and how You know not fairly they treat them and how there's been deaths and things like that i just want your I i just want
0: your take on that a little um i think that there needs to be accountability so like we see case after case where we can see with our own eyes that a police officer acted so let me preface all this by saying I'm extremely pro-police. Like we, you know, I'm extremely like, I have members of my family that are black police officers. So like, even though that's not the path that I took, I respect the fact that they took that path and I respect that they're trying to change the system from the inside. And there's so many good police officers that go throughout their day and are unnoticed for all the good that they do. So any comment that I'm going to make I just want to preface by I'm extremely pro police and thankful for what they do. But with that and being you, said and
1: Before you, and before you and before you go on you know let's just preface it also with no matter the profession and I'm also very pro police but no matter the profession there are bad people in any profession. Absolutely. You know yeah, and and I think absolutely. that's that's the one thing that ticks me off the most. When this topic comes up and when it's talked about, this comment, you know, I've been in the fire service and around the fire service since I was five years old. Right. Do you know the, you know, one of the not necessarily highest, but do you know, cause of fires when they're arson? Do you know who who is the first first people that are looked at, the firemen yeah. themselves? Right. Really? So you know that that doesn't come up very often, and you know, I'll let you I'll let you have the platform now and you know, talk about you know what you were. But I just wanted to throw that out there that, you know, I think that's the thing that gets lost. There's bad secrets right. in every industry.
0: Yeah. And this is so like, systematically, and historically, the police in America, like, I'm not saying today, or anybody specific, and I think it is still around today, but systematically, in America, the police have been legally allowed to oppress minorities. Like it has been the case. And like we were talking earlier, like segregation, like it was the police's job to enforce segregation laws. And that was like laws that were imposed upon my uncle and my granddad. So like in America, historically, the police have been allowed to be to legally oppress minorities. Those laws have changed today. I think that sometimes, like we said, it takes the culture a while to change with it. The thing that I think is going to maybe not fix the problem but make it better is accountability. So if we all see with our eyes this situation where an officer killed somebody that he should not have killed, like there needs to be some type of accountability in that because we hear this argument of like, oh, it was just a bad apple, there was a few bad apples. But, like, if you're a pilot and you crash a plane, like, and you kill somebody, like, that few bad apples argument is going to go out the window. Like, you're going to be suing Southwest for, you know what I mean, millions and millions of dollars, and they're going to have to pay it out. Like, they can't get up and say, oh, well, that was just a bad apple. Like, no, he, like, they're going to have to take accountability for the places that they went wrong. So I think we need to have that same argument when it comes to the police. And I think, um, like, there's a stigma in Black America, like the police are only out to get you, but that's what it feels like. Like the very first run-in that I had with the police, I was with my brother Forrest. This was one of like the first times I ever felt like true strong racism in my life. I was on, I was walking down um, like a back street of Rehoboth Avenue, or not Rehoboth Avenue, but like a back street of Rehoboth and I was with my brother, Forrest, and he, you know I mean, we we're both young, mixed kids, so we were just walking, we were walking back to our car, I was probably, like, 15 years old, and this police officer pulled up on us, and we were just walking back throughout the thing, and he was like, oh, what are you guys doing in this neighborhood, and we were like, we're just walking back to our car, and he was like, all right, well, you know, lie on the ground, yada, da, da, da. and like, so I'm, like, in shock, like, what the heck, like, lie on the ground, so, like, he ends up calling, uh, you know, back up and like, all these people are out there over us. And now he's saying that like, Oh, I saw him trying to break into this house. And we're like, but like, we're walking back to our car. So, and then it ended up just being finally one officer came and he was like, look, well, if you didn't actually physically see these guys, these kids trying to do anything wrong, like you got to let them go. But that was the very first contact that I had with the police. So, so. Like, thinking of that story, you can see how this negative stigma came to be about. You know what I mean? So, if you don't open your eyes to see that there are good, you know what I mean, good police, and that's all that you hear is, like, police are out to get you, then it's easy to feel that way because there's pieces that line up with that way of thinking. You know what I mean? It's not the truth, but there's pieces that line up with that way of thinking.
1: Now, do do you not think that the accountability goes both ways, though, because, you know, and, and why I say this is, you know, I, I don't know if you watch this show live, PD, um, but yeah. you know, it comes on, on A&E every Friday and Saturday night. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. One of the things that you see on there, and it doesn't matter... If it's a white person or a black person or a white cop or a black cop or a Japanese cop, it doesn't matter. This happens right. consistently that they make a traffic stop. The person, for whatever reason, has a violation of some sort, whether the tags are bad, they don't have a driver's license, they don't have whatever. That, that traffic stop can do one of two things. It can end right there as you know the person takes accountability for their actions and says thank you officer for you know giving me this ticket which I know sounds stupid but you know what I mean right or they can run they can grab for a gun they can you know all those other scenarios that makes this turn into a, a news story right and I, and I I think- feel like go ahead
0: now I was going to say. It, like if an officer was to pull me over and I was to pull out a firearm like that officer is defending his life so he has every right to shoot me but I think where things get misconstrued is like a video like Philando Castile like he says officer I have a, I have a legally registered firearm in the car the officer says alright show me the registration he says I'm going to reach for the registration now. And then without saying anything, he just pulls out his gun and just kills him. Something, a situation like that, like we can all physically see with our eyes who was in the wrong. And that's why I think accountability is the biggest thing. Like you said, it goes both ways because, and and it's sad in our culture because when these things happen, like in black America, like, People say, you know what I mean, or like the older people of our, of our generation say to us like, oh, we're going to try and train you how to deescalate situations with the police. So like, put your hands through the steering wheel, put your hands on the dashboard, don't reach for anything, just yes sir, no sir. And that's how we train like our youth in black America, but it should be the officers that are being trained to deescalate the situation. I'm not saying that we should not be trained in to know what's going on, but it should be the officer's job to de-escalate those situations. You know what I mean? I think well, we're both we're both agreeing that change yeah. needs to be made on both sides.
1: I mean, right. and you know, I wasn't. I, I hope you didn't take what I was saying to mean anything other than there should yeah, be no, balance, yeah.
0: huh? absolutely. Yeah. And,
1: and because, like, even enough. in the case that you're in the case you're talking about, you know, I've watched that video many times and seen it and everything. And, you know, it's unfortunate that we don't know what was going through that officer's mind. Do, right. Did he make the wrong decision? Obviously. And in the end, hindsight being 20, 20, we 20 we know 100% he was reaching for the registration, not the gun. Right. We do know that based on the video and based on everything. But we don't know what was going through that officer's mind. Right. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we're never, well, hopefully never going to have the Robocop scenario because, as the movie showed us, that can still go wrong, you know? So right. it, it's, it's unfortunate that these things happen, but it's also, in some ways, I think, it's like the domino effect. How do you stop it? How do you, how do you right in the middle, pull out the domino so it doesn't keep falling? And, right, And that's, and
0: it's, you know, it's go ahead. like, I don't know the answer to the problem specifically, but I know statistically that it happens that fatal shootings by the police per capita happen far more often, astronomically more often to people of color in this country than they do to white people in this country. So I don't say that like I'm half white. You know what I mean? I don't say that in a way of, like, um, like trying to point fingers or trying to be like, oh, you know what I mean? They're out to get us. But I say that there's, like, there's an astronomical problem in this country that's been here from the founding of this country that we should try and address. But... but and and part of, that, part of that, that, Caleb, isn't part of that that, um,
1: right or wrong? And, 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 you know, that statistic and everything... You know, right or wrong, isn't doesn't police have contact with the the black community much more than they do the white community? Isn't that also absolutely. a statistic? Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and, I, and I'm just throwing it out there because you know I, yeah. again it's I I think it has to be a balanced thing. And, and you're right about the statistic that's out there, but it's also you know. The thing about statistics yeah. is you can sp- you can spin on whatever way you want, yeah. and and I'm and not saying I- I'm not saying that in this case, you know, we have a problem that officers are shooting African American people at, at an alarming rate, but it's the fact that anybody is dying at yeah. for any reason right.
0: that should be approved. Yeah, and it, and I think. And I think one of the one of the things that needs to happen in our country is we just need to pull all, um, all of our biases and like preconceived thoughts out of it, and just say like, okay, people are dying in all sorts of ways in this country, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of whatever. Like, let's sit down and let's figure out how we're going to solve the problem. But I think too often. People's political views get involved, and then it just becomes a political talking point versus trying to actually solve the problem.
1: so um you know this episode is going to run on Easter Sunday. It's going to be you know published on Easter Sunday. What are some of the traditions you know you said you come from you know a religious background and everything? What are some of the traditions that your family on both sides have on Easter um, that you know you'd like to share with everybody else?
0: Hmm. Um, when we woke up, my mom would always have Easter baskets for us. So we would do that. We would get up on Easter Sunday, uh, open our Easter baskets. We would go to church. Usually, um, usually I'd be playing on the, on the, the music. So this year I'm playing drums <laughs> for the church. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, probably just a lot like every other family in America, I'm sure. Get Easter baskets. The kids do an Easter egg hunt. So this year my nephews or my nephew and my niece will be out there. Um, we usually have, like, an Easter lunch. Um, yeah, and then just enjoying time with family. How about you? What are some traditions that you have for Easter?
1: As a kid, we always uh, – my mom always hid the Easter baskets in some weird space. You know, sometimes they would be in the oven and sometimes they would be <laughs> – Hid, sometimes they'd be hid outside and you know that was like the first you know 35 to 45 minutes of the, the morning just searching to find out where the Easter baskets were and then we always um, went to my grandmother's house um and you know had the huge meal the traditional ham and you know deviled eggs and everything you can imagine where you ate till you were stuffed and then you took a nap right. and then you kind of just, you know, more. the cousins were together, and everybody went out yeah. and played. And just same thing that happens, like you said, you know, pretty much every year. So yeah. we're getting uh we we stretch this out to uh, the 45-minute uh, two-on-the-phone episode, but that's cool. So let's just spend a, a few minutes, you know, allowing you to promote some of the things that you're doing. Um, you know, sh- a couple shout-outs to your whatever Facebook or social media accounts you want to shout-out to. Cool.
0: Um, yeah, so my album, Prince the First, it comes out on May 6th. Um, you can follow us online at the O2 Collection, so at the02collection. My personal is at CalebWeed02, C-A-L-E-B W-E-E-D e e d zero two. Um, we got our Spring Collection coming out here in the next couple of weeks for the O2 Collection, so we're going to be starting to put out some new merchandise. Um, yeah, and Four is d My brother, he's got a new single coming out um, called Feel Like. So it's a, it's a lot of good stuff. We got a lot of music that's been in the works over the past couple months that we're getting ready to start releasing. But, um, well, yeah, May 6th, Prince Sheed, the first the album. It's available on iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, um, Amazon, anywhere you can think of it being. It's going to be there, YouTube. And then Don't Give That Up, the single off of the album. Is also everywhere right now. Is available, so you can get that anywhere. So at the O2 Collection at Caleb Weed O2, I appreciate you guys and
1: thank you for uh, being on the show. And um, you know, we yeah, being able to talk to you. And uh, and you know, one of the things you know, like I said, you know, there's a huge difference in our age and a huge difference in our culture. But I think right. this needs to happen more that people. Absolutely. Get together and, you know, and, and hopefully people out there will hear this and know that we can come together instead of right, totally being used each other's throats all the time. Right.
0: Yeah. And it's, I think it's important to say, too, that we didn't play in any of that conversation. Like, that was 100% off the cuff. So, like, if we can have that conversation and talk articulately to each other off the cuff, anybody else in America can have that same thing.
1: I think that's a great point.
0: Well, thank you, Caleb, for being on the show. And listeners
1: out there, we have a very special uh, episode number 10 coming up next week. I'll tease that on the uh, Facebook throughout the week. But let's just say it's as close to me interviewing myself as I can get. So um, look for that. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Two on the Phone. Please follow us on Facebook, Two on the Phone. Also, please, for timely and accurate news and information, follow Shore News Beacon on Facebook. Thank you.